Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Kindled Podcast. I'm your host, Haley Williams, and this is the show where we talk about truth and grace boldly. I'm so glad you're here. Hey guys, it's Haley. This is episode 118 of Kindled. Today, I'm chatting with Sarah May. I have struggled to even record this intro because her story can't really be put in a nutshell. But Sarah's story involves forgiveness, God's faithfulness, and care, even at many times in her life when she believed that she was not worth caring for or being loved. And so I did not time the airing of this episode around Mother's Day. It just kind of happened that way on my on my calendar. But what I will say is that I think we always need to be reminded and remember the truth that God cares for us better than any parent ever could. So even though many of us won't have a story exactly like Sarah's, or, or with something quite as extreme as the past that she has walked through, a lot of us have areas of place of hurt that we've experienced from those in our life that we believe we could be able or should be able to trust implicitly. So with that, I'm going to get right into the conversation with Sarah May. Here we go. Sarah, welcome to Kindled. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to talk with you. I actually, I didn't even tell you this, but I think I've been following your writing for years. I think I remember reading, I don't know how, were you on, you blogged, right? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I haven't actually blogged in quite a while, even though I'm still called a blogger, but yeah, way back in the day, I had a blog called like a warm cup of coffee. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? I may may, maybe a long I, time ago. I just remember, like and it's like Sarah May writes. Is that your? Oh yeah, yeah. So so saramay.com, but all my handles are Sarah May writes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I just yeah. feel like I remember, and I couldn't even tell you what I read of yours. I just knew when I started seeing you, you know, releasing this book that you wrote and seeing your name on like podcasts. I was like, I know her. Or I remember that name. So it's mm. funny. Have you heard of? Because I know you have three kids under five. Have you heard of Desperate Hope for the Mom Who Needs to Breathe? Because that was my first book with Sally Clarkson. Okay, maybe. You need to look into that one. I think I need that. Three kids under five. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds, sounds like perfect for me in this season. Well, thanks for making time to chat with me. And we're going to talk about your story. But before we do, could you introduce yourself to readers and tell us about you and your family? Sure. So um, I go by Sarah May online, but everybody can just call me Sarah. I do have a last name, but I was afraid of the internet when I started blogging in 2007. (laughs) So I didn't use it. And then after getting published, it just was what it was. So now I'm Mm -hmm. just forever Sarah May, like share, but not. (laughs) I have three kids. I have an 11-year-old, an almost 13-year-old, and a 14-year-old. So 
I know what those three under five stages like. It's it's wonderful and exhausting and all the things. I have a husband who is a woodworker and currently we are renovating a fixer upper that we just moved into. So we're all living upstairs. I have no kitchen or oven or anything and it's a little bit crazy. So I'm at a library right now, hidden away. I have written several books. Just recently, last summer, I had my first Bible study come out, which is called Psalm 40, Crying Out to the God Who Delights to Rescue Us, which is just so birthed of my heart because that was been my life first. And then uh, my most recent book, The Complicated Heart, came out in uh, September. And that tells the story of how I learned to love and forgive my alcoholic mother. And one other quick thing, I have a podcast as well, The Complicated Heart Podcast, where we talk about all kinds of messy things. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, that's great. And I... I'm so thankful that you wrote this book and I'm, I know that it took you, you know, it, you sat on it for a while, even though it was your story, you lived it. So let's kind of get into that. Where, where do you begin when you tell this story? You you just mentioned you had an alcoholic mother. Mm -hmm. What was growing up like for you? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because my parents divorced before I was even a year old. So I never knew anything different than having divorced parents. And so, but the interesting part of that is that I actually, my dad got custody of me. Mm. So I grew up living with my dad and my stepmom. So I would only see my mom in the summers during summertime. And she was like the most awesome mom ever. I always said I wanted to be just like my mom or Madonna. And I did not grow up a Christian And so I didn't know anything was off with my mom. Like I said, I thought she was the most amazing thing ever. So much fun. But there were different things that had happened along the way. Like when I was, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, I wasn't allowed to see my mom in the summer uh, because there were some accusations made about Mm -hmm. sexual abuse, which Mm -hmm. weren't true, but that was a really tough period of time. And then my sister got kidnapped by her dad. We have separate dads and we couldn't find her for several months. And so there was all these like little intermingling things going on. But when I was 14, I felt like a girl should live with her mother. And my stepmom and I did not get along. We did not have a good relationship at all. And so I went to my dad, who was wonderful, and I said, I'm going to go live with mom and you can't stop me because I'm old enough to make that decision. And so with tears in his eyes, you know, he said, okay. And he knew my mom had issues, but I don't think he knew she was an alcoholic at that time. I don't even know if she was yet or she was like, well, she probably had just become, she'd gone through so much with the accusations and all kinds of things that I think that is what led her to drinking. But anyway, that's all unfolded in the book. But anyway, so I move in with her at 14 and it was amazing for about a month. She lived, I moved in with her. My sister was now living with my mom and then my mom lived with her 20 year old boyfriend. And so it was great. I could do whatever I wanted. I really did not have a lot of rules. I didn't have to clean my room, you know, like my, Mm -hmm. it was just wonderful But then as time went on, I began to notice my mom just being really, really mean to me. I had always seen her sort of sarcastic and uh, very biting to her husband. She was married five times, four times. I can't remember right now. Mm. So I had always witnessed that, but she had not ever turned it on me. And for the first time, she was just so sarcastic and biting and cruel to me. And as a teenager, you know, 
you're already dealing with like your hormones and insecurities and I had braces and I was not very pretty. And, you know, she would tell me I was ugly or stupid or whatever. And it was just very, very painful. And she also would do something that I only learned this term in the past couple of years, which is gaslighting. Mm-hmm. So she would gaslight me, which is basically when somebody makes you think you're crazy, like they'll work you up or call you names or be mean. And then when you finally have enough and you call them on it, they're like, what are you talking about? You know, and they turn it around on you. Mm-hmm. And the example I always give of that is it's like if you were talking to somebody and they punched you in the face and you start bleeding and you're like, oh my gosh, why did you punch me? And they're like, I didn't punch you. You walked into my fist. And you're like, no, I didn't. And they're like, yeah, you did. And then they're so good at manipulating you that you end up walking away, beating your own self up for being so stupid that you could run into somebody's fist. Mm -hmm. So, and how can you fix it with them now? And so it was very, very confusing. And so the breaking point with my mom was really when, I mean, there was a lot, but sort of the, when I kind of, I would say it got really bad was when I, I had seen some show about intervention, like, um, cause I started to see like, maybe my mom's an alcoholic. Like I didn't really know what that was, but I was watching her drink a lot and I was seeing how she was behaving and her boyfriend drank a lot. And so I'm like putting two and two together. And then I see this show that is like a family has an intervention and, the alcoholic wants to change and yay, happy ending, right? And so I think, oh, I just need to like, my mom doesn't know. I just need to tell her and then she'll get help and we'll be okay. And so, you know, with major trepidation and fear, I'm 14 again, insecure teenager, go out to talk to my mom and essentially, you know, stumble out the words, mom, I think you're an alcoholic. And she just laughs at me. And she says, so what? Mm -hmm. And I was like, that was not what the show told. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? So what mom, like when you drink, you're really mean. And she just was like rolling her eyes, not taking me seriously. And at one point, you know, the fire starts to burn in me at this point. Like, why isn't she listening? Like, why isn't she taking me seriously? Like, doesn't she know how mean she is? And I said what a teenager would say, trying to hurt somebody. And I just said, like, I don't even think I love you anymore because I'm thinking this is going to, this is going to wake her up. Like your kid telling you they don't love you. Yeah. And she just laughs. Like it did not phase her. She did not take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And so at that point I was just like, I have no control. I felt absolutely powerless. I could not change her. I couldn't change my situation. I felt stuck. It never occurred to me that I could go back and live with my dad because that felt like a bad situation with my stepmom. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of resign yourself to being where you are. And then sort of the last, the very last desperate teenage straw was when I was sitting in a bathtub and I could hear my mom making a drink. And I don't remember the whole context of the situation, but I just remember yelling out to my mom because I was so upset. Maybe I'll just kill myself. You know, like I was just looking at this pink daisy razor on the side of the tub thinking Mm. maybe I should just kill myself, not because I want to die, but because if I die, maybe she'll realize like what she's doing Mm -hmm. and how she's acting. And she just yells, go ahead. I dare you. And at that point Mm. I knew it didn't even matter. And so I just cried. And, and this is the point where when we feel utterly alone and misunderstood and unloved, 
we find love in other ways. And so for me, that looked like finding a boyfriend. And so I did. And it's not even that I necessarily loved him or even liked him all that much, but we became each other's shelter and we spent every waking hour together and we had started having sex at 14. And that was just what I thought you did. And, you know, his mom was addicted to crack, I think it was, and he didn't have a dad in the picture. And so that's all we did. We just spent all of our time together. So I would just, just reiterate a few things. So one, I, I did not know the Lord at all. Two, I'm in complete confusion. I mean, I really hate myself because I, I've been manipulated and gaslit and have no idea about any of that. So it's just wildly confusing. And I feel like a complete idiot all the time and just hate myself. Also, I'm in this relationship with somebody and we're having sex. And I think that's what you're supposed to do. And eventually that leads to me getting pregnant at 16. Now I have to back up a little bit here. I forgot to say something kind of important Yeah, just because it it really goes along with just how bad things were going. Before I had met my boyfriend, so I was 14, you know, I had already confronted my mom, all the things, blah, blah, blah. Her ex-stepson, who was 18 at the time, I was 14, moved in with us for about two months. And my mom just thought the world of him. She always said she wanted a son, like she, not, he could do no wrong. And I can't remember why this happened, but for whatever reason, he slept in my bedroom. I had bunk beds which is a really terrible idea. And he really took advantage of me. And it was very confusing for me. And what I now call sexual abuse, or mm-hmm. it's still even hard for me to say those words because mm-hmm. I really liked him and I thought I wanted the things that he was doing. Mm-hmm. But when I look back, like I have a 14-year-old now, and if I saw an 18-year-old doing those things to her, I would freak out yeah. <laughs> and be like, sexual abuse. But the heart is funny and you're lonely and I was very alone. And so I clung to that he might like me and then he left, like he just up and left one day and I never heard from him again. And it just really did a lot to my heart because I was very, very confused. I thought like he loved me or something, which is so silly because he was just using me. And so add that to sort of this picture as well of me then clinging to a boyfriend because now at this point I'm like... I want to be loved so badly. Like I've already been rejected by my mother. I've been rejected by my stepmother. I felt like I have been rejected by this person who just took advantage of me and I thought they cared about me. And so instead of like walling off, I went head first into this relationship that I acted like we were married because I needed so desperately to want to be wanted. Anyway, so 16, I find out that I'm pregnant. And that was like the scariest moment of my entire life. He was 15, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a year younger than me. So I didn't want to tell my mom. I didn't know how to tell my mom. I for sure thought we were going to just get married and have this baby and like, you know, we'll get a trailer and everything will be fine and it'll be hard. But I lived in this really teeny tiny town in Georgia and like girls got pregnant And um, that's just sort of kind of the way it was. So it wasn't totally, I mean, it was shameful, you know, like I felt shame, but it wasn't unheard of there. Right. Right. It wasn't like where I came from in the North, where if I would have gotten pregnant, it would have been like the biggest scandal. Right. So anyway, so I get pregnant. My mom finds out and she goes numb. Like she can't, she doesn't even know what to say. She checks out. And I found out later it's because she'd had two abortions and never dealt with them. Mm. And one when she was, I think 16. And so she just didn't even know how to handle it. She reverted to being a little girl. 
And so I couldn't talk to her. She checked out of the situation completely. I told my grandmother, who I was really close to, she lived in Pennsylvania, which is where I was from. And I was in Georgia at this point. And she said that she would have it taken care of. And I was like, what? No, what are you talking about? And um, she hung up the phone. And my dad was really kind to me because he knew I was so scared. Now, it was about this time that I was going to Pennsylvania for the summer. Mm-hmm. And so I am pregnant. I'm extremely sick. I'm very, very thin and weak. And I, I go to Pennsylvania and my grandmother, who I was so close to, she won't even look at me. She won't talk to me when I told her I was going to keep the baby. Mm-hmm. And talk about being pushed even more and more into a place of complete and utter loneliness yeah. because there was so much shame around the fact that I was pregnant. And now my family doesn't want anybody to know. And everybody has ideas about what I should do, but nobody ever asked me. Mm-hmm. Um, my stepmom wanted to keep the baby for herself, which I thought was crazy because we didn't get along. And that would have been really weird to raise a baby as my brother or sister. Yeah. And then everybody else wanted me to have an abortion. And I was like, well, what if I like choose adoption, but nobody liked that idea? And so there were like talk of like sending me away to New Jersey, like Mm. (laughs) like I had the baby so nobody would know, like just crazy things. And finally, at three months along, I'm just so tired of it. Like I'm tired of throwing up morning to night. I had that thing that I don't know what it's called. I found out there was a name later. Yes. Uh, I know what you're talking (laughs) about. An H, but basically. Hyperemesis. Yes. Yes. You're just throwing up all day. It was awful. And I was so sick of it. And uh, my other grandmother, my mom's mom from Georgia came to visit and she puts her arm around me. And I don't think anybody had touched me for like three months. And she puts her arm around me and she says, honey, if you have an abortion, like you can have a life, like you can go to prom, Mm -hmm. you know, you can have your life back. And at this point I was like, I don't care. (laughs) Like just, I just want to do what everybody else wants because I'm so sick of this. Like I just want to be back in the fold. And so I decide to have the abortion. I tell my grand, my other grandmother who said she'd have it taken care of. And she did. And the night before I had the abortion, I just held my tummy and I cried and I apologized to the baby. And then the next day I went into the hospital. The doctor said I was way too fidgety to have an abortion in the clinic. So I went into a hospital. They changed my name because I had a prominent family and uh, they put me under completely, like totally asleep. I went to my grandmother's. I slept for two days. My stepmom didn't want me in the house. She was Catholic and very Mm pro-life and I wasn't allowed to live there anymore. So I moved in with my grandmother, slept for two days. I woke up and I came out into the kitchen where she served me toast with a smile and we never, ever talked about it. So then now there's that residing somewhere in my soul. So yeah, there is a lot. This all sounds hopeless. There's so much hope in the story and so much Jesus. It just hadn't happened yet, but he was there all along. I just didn't know it. Yeah. Well, it is. And it is heartbreaking. It's, It's heartbreaking as a mom to imagine what you must have felt like, you know, and truly being and, and feeling, well, not being, cause you just, you know, reminded us that God was there, but feeling completely alone and feeling abandoned. And yeah, you know, in relation to the abortion, I think just to kind of hop out of the story for a second, it is such yeah. a reminder to us. Like there are, I would venture to bet <laughs> 75 plus percent of all abortions happen because somebody thinks there is no other option. It's not oh, because I would say like 95. Yeah. I used to work in a crisis pregnancy clinic mm-hmm. and I was one of the volunteer counselors and I talked to girl after girl after girl mm-hmm. and 
I mean, it was just, they just felt like they had no other choice. And their number one fear was always their parents. Yes. Yes. Always. I mean, even Christians, Christian homes, maybe even especially because there is, like you said, this, you have a prominent family, you have this reputation to keep up, or you were, you know, really successful academically or playing high school sports. And all of a sudden something happens and it's like, I can't, no, that's not even an option. That's not even on the table. Like, and, and I have a similar story in college. It was, a, I was a little bit older and I, I did not know if I was pregnant, but I thought I might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took, terrifying. I took the plan B pill. And so mm-hmm. yeah. equally desperate kind of feeling, even though I, I wasn't sure it was just that same, like this cannot happen. There is right. no road back from this. And yes. so I have to undo what has been done because Mm-hmm. I did not have a pathway back. And I think it sounds like that's how you, 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 you sort of thought there might be, but then everyone around you basically told you like, no, there isn't yeah. like your only way forward is to kind of erase this. Yes. That's a, that's a really good way of putting it. People think that it can be erased. Yes. And the dirty little secret is that it can't. <laughs> it can't. And it is a mark on your soul, you know, and, and not in a red letter way, but it, it no, affects you. It but affects you're a mother. you. Right. You are a mother. The minute you are pregnant, you have become a mother and you cannot undo that. Mm-hmm. And I just would love to say, I'm just going to take this opportunity to say two quick yes. things. One, if you have had an abortion and you are listening, you have permission to grieve. I know you think you don't, Mm -hmm. but you do. I know in a world where so many women suffer the devastating experience of miscarriages, those of us who had abortions think we have no right to cry. We have no right to grieve, but I know that you were scared to death and I know you probably thought it was your only choice and you absolutely have permission to grieve. Mm -hmm. The second thing I would say is that, and it's what you said, is that so many you know, we th- because we see these sort of like marches with women who seem proud of their abortions and there's a lot of loud voices at the top, th- those are not the women who are finding out they're pregnant and are scared to death. Right. Those are not the scared girls who feel desperate. And so just remember that when you're seeing all the noise and all of the pro-choice leaders at the top and all of that, mm-hmm. uh, that is not these scared girls. But I just want to say that. <laughs> no, I'm really glad you did. And I, I appreciate that because- that is not the messaging. That's not the messaging we see in, in the media or if we turn on the TV or even watch the Oscars. I think everybody even... is like, I'm so proud. And I right. think even the women who say they're proud, I just think it's how they're dealing with it. Yes. Like you it's have not... to deal with it in some way. Yeah. And we can, any one of us can lie to ourselves and tell ourselves a narrative. And, and if we say it enough, we'll believe it. I mean, I, I totally know how that goes. Like in, yeah. in other contexts, I can, I can tell myself, well, this is what she said and you're the victim, yeah. you know? And so you, yeah. you can do that. And, and it is, it is, you build a wall. I mean, any, and I, I did the same thing in my situation. I built up a wall of mm-hmm. protection and it was denial. I actually forgot that it happened for 12 years. Wow. I'm not surprised. I, <laughs> I completely forgot. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and it was only last January where I remembered and it was, wow. it was pretty crazy. It was, um, remember when the New York passed that bill that was like late term abortion. It was, it was during that time that actually the Holy spirit reminded me because I was so angry. And and this is something you see with people Mm -hmm. who um, go through abortions is the abortion wounded. They often either get involved in anti-abortion causes or pro-choice causes. And I was very much on the 
you know, I'm volunteering for this crisis pregnancy center doing their graphic design. I'm like, I'm passionately anti-abortion and against pro-choice and all this. And I was getting ready to record a podcast intro and say how mad I was about it and how much of a blight on American motherhood this ruling was. Mm -hmm. And I said the words, the reason I care so much about this is, and then God literally stopped me in my tracks and reminded me of my scenario, of my my situation. Wow! And it was like, it brought to my mind, like, the reason you care is because you did this too. Like, Mm. even though, you know, I don't know if I truly had an abortion or not, what he showed me was it was an abortion of the heart. You found yourself in that desperate situation and you would have done anything to get out of it. Right. The exact same thing that anyone else would find themselves driving into a parking lot of a Planned Parenthood to do. And and it was just very convicting and humbling and really put me back in my place because I, I think mm-hmm. I was really coming into um, a, a place of self-righteousness and, and anger that, you know, we, we can be angry and not sin, but mine was maybe anger with sin. <laughs> like yeah. mine was, yeah. was a condemning, just not having understanding and eyes of grace to see people the way that Christ sees them. And anyway, so sidetracked there, but I, that is just such a common situation that we see. And I think that most people, like you said, are in that spot where they they just don't know that there's none, any other option. They just don't know. Yeah. And I, I think we just had a Holy Spirit detour because the reality is so many women there. I mean, what is it like one in three or one in four women who have had abortions? I speak all over the country and women come up to me and tell me about their abortions that they've never told anybody about Christian women. Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, we could have a whole episode just on this topic. (laughs) Right. We could. could. It's not the direction that we plan to take, but. No, no, but sometime maybe we'll, we'll do it. (laughs) We'll talk about it more, but it's, um, it is important that we talk about it because women need to be free. Yes. Amen. Jesus wants them free. I don't know about you, but I have found that growing in our relationship with the Lord can be confusing sometimes. Man-made rules and expectations abound, making it all rather overwhelming. Add to that our daily ongoing struggle with sin and our seeming inability to overcome it, and growing in sanctification can begin to feel a bit hopeless. That is why authors Rebecca Hargraves, Kayla Nelson, Kathy Schwenk, Lauren Jane Bellows, and Amber Durgan joined forces to write a book just for you a book entitled Walk by the Spirit, What It Looks Like to Live the Spirit-Filled Life. As Galatians 5.16 tells us, walking by the Spirit truly is the key to resisting the flesh. In this book, you will learn about the tools of walking by the Spirit, tools like Bible study, prayer, and receiving wise counsel from your Christian community. You'll also learn how you can practically apply the practice of walking by the Spirit to each area of your life. With chapters on relationships and marriage, motherhood, work, ministry, hard times, and mental illness. To find out more, head to spiritfilledwomanmag.com slash shop. So as you were talking, telling your story and you said, you know, mm-hmm. this sounds so hopeless, but there is a lot of hope. Yeah. Where did God meet you? Where, okay. like, how did he enter into your story? Yeah. I love this so much. I just love how God shows up in the deepest, darkest places where we think we're alone. And he just so gently sits beside us and we're not alone. And when we're ready, he helps us out of the pit. And that's what he did for me. And so I can literally go back in time through my life and see where he was sitting with me, but I wasn't yet ready to turn to him. Or I did, but I didn't know enough. And so he 
you know, was wooing me all of these years, letting me know he was with me. So, so that started back when my sister was first kidnapped. And I remember praying every night to a God I did not know that we would find her. And we did. And I know not, that's not the story for everybody, but it was the story for me. And it cemented in my heart that there was a God and he heard my prayers. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know about Jesus. I didn't know anything else, but I knew there was a God. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to when I was 14 and I'm with my mom and it's awful. And an uncle comes to visit and he gives me this clay cross cassette tape. <laughs> and, you know, this was in the time before we've got iPhones and internet and all of these mm-hmm. things. And so I'm in my room and there's nothing to do. And so for whatever reason, I decide to play this cassette tape that my old uncle gives me. <laughs> and it was Christian music. And I had never heard Christian music, only hymns, because I would go to the Catholic church with my stepmom. I hated it, didn't want to go, but you know, I would go. But I had no idea at 14 that there was Christian music. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't know anything. And I'm listening to this man sing about this Jesus And I am just crying and praying out to God. And I'm, you know, God, I don't know what this man is singing about, but I want it. I want it. Mm -hmm. And my first taste of the scripture was when that same uncle had given me a book of verses and I would sit, the bathtub was my safe place. (laughs) And I would sit Mm -hmm. in the bathtub and read for hours. It was like a topical verse thing. Like, what does God say about alcoholism? What does Mm -hmm. God say about compassion? You know, whatever it is. And I would just read these scriptures. And I just, so that, you know, it was all of these ways that the Lord was like, I'm, I'm with you. You're not alone. And then I remember walking into this church. I was probably 15 and had never been to any other church, but a Catholic church. In fact, I didn't know there was other churches and I had no idea. This is such a good reminder for us who are Christians. You think everybody knows who Jesus is and everybody knows, you know, I didn't even know that there were churches other than Catholic churches. That's how ignorant I was. Right. And so I go into this church and they're clapping and they're singing. And I was like, (laughs) what is this? Like, this is not church. And then the pastor spoke and I remember like, I could understand him. And it was just this really eye-opening experience for me. And so anyway, eventually I end up moving back to Pennsylvania and I find out, so I moved back in 11th grade and I just want to start over. I just want to start fresh. I'm sick of my life. I'd had this abortion. My boyfriend had cheated on me. We like lived in a trailer. His sister was prostituting herself out of the trailer. There was just like, my life was so filled with insane things that like, I feel like I lived a whole other life. And so I finally was like, I got to get out of here. And I knew if I moved back to Pennsylvania, I could get a fresh start. And I had the privilege to do that. And so I did. And I found out that all the cool kids went to this thing called Young Life on Wednesday nights to get out of the house. And so I was like, oh, man, I'd love to be a Young Life leader. And so anyway, (laughs) so I, I am a youth leader. Uh, which it's really fun full circle for me because I was never in youth group. And so now I get to relive it. But anyway, I mean, I get to live it (laughs) because I never had it. So I go to Young Life and I begin to hear the gospel. You know, I begin to hear about this Jesus who died for me and my sins and I'm piecing it together and I want more and more and I get, I get a hold of a new Testament and I can't stop reading it and it's coming alive to me and I'm highlighting it and writing notes. And I'm just so fascinated. And I remember saying, I used to listen to, this is so silly. In high school, I used to listen to Dr. Laura Schlesinger and she was, you know, that really like- Yes, the radio show. Yeah. Hard, you know, whatever, lots of opinions. And she used to say though, I'm a serious Jew. And so I remember saying, I'm a serious Christian. (laughs) (laughs) And I 
was that person who would like tell everybody about Jesus, but I didn't even know that there were four gospels. You know, I remember yeah. I was arguing with an atheist and I'm like the five uh-huh. gospels. And he's like, aren't there four? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> they call that cage stage when you're oh. like, you need to be caged <laughs> because you're just so <laughs> impassioned. And <laughs> hilarious. Cause it's true. Yeah. Jesus literally infiltrates you and yeah. he's in your blood. He's in your veins, you, you know, and, yeah. uh, but you don't know all the things yet. And so right. you're kind of obnoxious, but anyway, I was that obnoxious Jesus girl. Mm-hmm. But what really got me was I was at a retreat and in college, my freshman year of college, I got involved with the Navigators Ministry. And the man on the stage said, what would you do if Jesus walked in the room right now? And I was like, well, I would hide. Like he wouldn't want to see me. I mean, I was still so steeped in shame mm-hmm. and nobody had to tell me I was a sinner. I mean, I knew. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I don't remember the unfolding conversation, except that it was, Sarah, Jesus knows everything you've done and he knows everything you're going to do. And he knows everything you're doing now. And he loves you right now. And that really was the catalyst for me to fall so in love with Jesus that I didn't have to be ashamed Yeah, and that he would purify me. It's like the, the woman at the well, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Yes. He knew, yes. You know, it's like that exact scenario. Yeah. Replaying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, so he saved me pretty dramatically. I don't have a date I was saved, but it was still a very dramatic conversion in the sense of over a few years. But then, you know, you're, you know, he saves you, but you're, you haven't been sanctified yet. You're, you're only beginning the sanctifying journey. And so I was still full of very sinful habits and patterns and I didn't know how to stop. And then of course there was the stuff with my mom. Like I didn't want anything to do with her, Mm -hmm. but now I was a Christian and not only is the Lord wanting to heal me in so many ways and teach me to change my mind on so many of the sinful patterns I had, but also he wanted me to forgive my mom. And I was like, uh, what? (laughs) And all of this story is in the book because I know we're running out of time, but yeah, the biggest call I feel like during that time was other than the Lord, he was healing me in so many places, but was also don't reject your relationship with your mom. Like stay in it, stay in it and forgive her um, and I will help you. And so he did. I mean, he taught me how to set boundaries and he took me to a therapist who taught me how to mourn the valid loss of not having a mother. He taught me through mentors about core lies that I believed about myself and where he wanted to replace those lies with truth and set me free. And I'm giving such a a 50,000 foot overview, but, but those were the three most significant things that he did. Boundaries, well, core lies, boundaries, and mourning. And I'll briefly tell you, because I want your listeners to hear it if they don't get the book, because it's really important. So the first thing is this, when he first called me to stay in relationship with my mom, he doesn't call us just to stay in abusive relationships. He wants us to be wise and to set boundaries because he loves us and he even loves the person who hurts us. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we get to let them, we have to let them hurt us. So I was in a class, I was uh, studying to be a counselor and this man comes in and he's um, an addiction specialist. And I run up to him after class and I tell him about what's going on with my mom because we would talk on the phone But it was always like a downward spiral and it was terrible and she was still manipulating me, but I didn't know, I didn't have words for that. If we did get together, it always ended in disaster. And so I was telling him and he said to me, Sarah, if I have a ball in my hand and I throw it to you, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to catch it. 
And he said, and then what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'll throw it back. And he goes, okay, so you've decided to play the game. And this was my first introduction to boundaries. Hmm. If you don't want to play the game, don't throw the ball back. And so how this played out with my mother was when we would talk on the phone, I had to learn how to hang up without giving explanations, which sounds really mean, but when you're dealing with a really difficult uh, manipulative situation, you have to get out of it quickly. And so I prepped her. I said, mom, if things go downhill, I'm just going to go. But after that, I would just be like, oh, mom, someone's at the door. I got to go. Click. I wouldn't wait for her to say goodbye. Or if she started calling me names or something, I wouldn't explain it. I wouldn't tell her how she hurt me. I always tried to do that and it never resolved. Mm -hmm. And so you can't do that with somebody who is messed up. And so I would just say, got to go, mom, bye, click. And of course she hated it and she was really mad, but I had to do it for my own mental health. And at one point I had to even take like six months off from even talking to her, which Mm -hmm. she never really forgave me for all of her life, but I don't regret it because I had to do it. I had to get help Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what was up or what was down. I was so tangled up with her. And so I learned how to set boundaries. I also learned how to deal with deeply embedded lies that I had. So I went over to this mentor's house and I was telling her like, I'm such a mess. I'm so emotional. I can never get myself together. I just really would always beat myself up. I'll never change, blah, blah, blah. And she took out this piece of paper and she starts writing things down and she says, what stands out to you? And it was like, I'm stupid. I'm ugly. I'm not good enough. I'm powerless, you know, all of these things. And then, you know, I circle some of those and then she writes another list and it says, I must be beautiful. I must be in control. I must be smart. I must be athletic, you know, whatever it is, right? All these things. And she begins to explain to me that we all have these deeply embedded beliefs that usually come from our childhood. Mm-hmm. And children are excellent observers, but they are terrible interpreters. And yeah. so if a parent is mean, we think it's our fault and we are bad when that's their issue, but you don't know that. And so you resolve in your own heart, like I must be bad or I must not be good enough. And so then you come up with a behavior, something you have to do to be good enough. And so for me, it's like, I must be, I must be good enough. I must be smart enough. Like I must be taken seriously. Like all of these things to overcompensate. Like I will fix my mom. Like I had done all those things. Like if I just explain enough, if I just tell her how I feel enough, like she'll change. Well, all of that's not true. And then what happens is somebody triggers that, okay? They step on a landmine in your heart and you blow up because they've just called you on your lie that you don't even know you have. So for example, when my mom would not take me seriously or she would laugh at me, I would rage, like Mm -hmm. rage. Why? Because she's triggering that thing in my heart. It's causing me to actually believe that it is true about me and I can't face that. And so I'm angry. Mm -hmm. And so this is such a terrible general overview, but no, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah, If you want to, and all of this is laid out in the book, but if you want to figure out your core lies, the key is pay attention to your emotions. When Mm -hmm. do you really get angry? When do you fly off the handle? When do you find yourself really depressed? When do you find yourself anxious and fearful? And I'm not talking about chemical imbalances, like, mm-hmm. like pay attention to those times and start to pay attention to what it was that triggered it. Because most likely there's going to be a, a lie there. 99% of anger is not righteous. <laughs> right. Almost always right. a lie there. Mm-hmm. And so you yes. can begin to dig there. And then the, the third so thing that really helped me to love and forgive my mother, by the way, because when you deal with your lies and you begin to believe the truth, then it doesn't matter what somebody thinks of you. It doesn't matter what they say about you. It doesn't, it's not that it doesn't affect you at all, but you begin to really believe that like nobody has the authority to tell you who you are, but Christ, he is the only one who has that authority. And, and he says that we are loved and we are secure in him. 
And so once we believe that and we have that identity in Christ, it's okay if somebody doesn't like you. It's okay if somebody calls you a name. It hurts, but you are okay. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the, the third thing is once I got through my anger, I realized I was just deeply in my gut sad that yeah. I didn't have a mom. Mm-hmm. I was seeing all of my friends have moms who they could watch movies with or hug or talk to boys about. I mean, I remember hugging my mom once and her pushing me away and being like, what are you, a lesbian? Like, mm-hmm. like there was not affection. And so then I was just deeply, deeply sad. And I took my sadness to a counselor and I thought she was going to tell me, you know, like you can have a mom and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And she said, Sarah, you need to mourn the loss of a mother mm-hmm. because you don't have one. You need to mourn her as though she died. And mourning is the process of facing reality. It's just facing the truth of what is. So we don't mourn the future because we don't mourn what God may yet restore, but yeah. we can mourn what, mourn what is before us and what has happened. And it was a valid mourning to mourn the loss of a mother because I did not have one. And that was agonizing. And there's, you know, we could talk a lot about that and it's all in the book on different ways people can mourn their losses, but yeah. It's the truth that will set us free. And so we have to be willing to face the truth of what is. And I had to do that. And that mourning is is like essential to becoming healed and becoming That's whole right. again. You can't, That's right. you can't bypass it. There's Mm-mm. just no way. And Mm-mm. And I think that like that is, even the Bible says, blessed is the one who mourns for they shall be comforted because yeah. that Jesus does meet us there. And, and it's not a picture perfect, you know, it's not the thing we want to be known for. It's not the, it's not the situation we want to go through. Like nobody wants mm-hmm. to have to mourn anything. Cause that means that, you know, something has been lost and something has been broken, but he does meet us in that. That's right. And I would say you can't have real comfort until you have really faced the truth of your pain, mm-hmm. because it isn't until you face the truth the reality of what is, no matter how much we want to pretend it isn't there, or the fact that we don't want to feel it or go through it, you can't get that real comfort until you're willing to actually face the thing, the truth yeah. of it. And it's agonizing. I can remember when I went into post-abortion counseling, I can remember throwing the book across the room. You know, I went through all the stages of grief, of course. And I remember throwing the book across the room. I was just so angry because facing it is so hard. It's easy to say, yes, I want to get healed and I want to face it. But when you're in the dirt of it, it it feels absolutely impossible and your whole body reacts. I mean, it's, it's physical. And so, but through that process of experiencing the physical and the emotional and the mental and all of it, that is when we begin to heal. That is when we begin to get free. And that is when we experience the true comfort of the father who so longs to comfort us. Yes. So true. So you've obviously, you know, you've, co- you've co- come to a place where you actually have, you know, forgiven your mom and been able to find healing there. But what would you say to the woman who's listening, who has not forgiven the one who has hurt them and is in that place? Like how, how do they move forward in being wounded and also forgiving? Yep. Yeah. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? Yeah. So I'll say a couple quick things. The first one is this question I have, which is, do you believe God enough to forgive? Do you believe what he says? Do you believe that he is good? Do you believe that he is for you? Do you believe him when he says to forgive? Like, do you believe him enough that he knows more than you, that he sees a bigger picture than you believe? 
because that's the first thing you have to wrestle out. But then as you're wrestling that out, or if you decide, you know what, I believe God enough to, to do it, to forgive. Then I would say you want to go through the three things that I mentioned earlier. If you're going to forgive somebody, then depending on the nature of your relationship, you've got to learn how to set boundaries so they can no longer harm you or your family. Mm-hmm. So depending on the nature or the severity of it, there are times where you can forgive, but you don't have to be in proximity. You don't have to stay in relationship even because to love somebody is not to let them have free reign in your life. To love somebody is also to confront them with their own sin in the hopes that they will change and turn to the Lord yes. um, or repent. And so you, I, I can't tell you that. I would say it's wise to seek out a therapist depending on the severity of what you have to forgive or the nature of it. For me, I knew that God was calling me to stay in relationship with my mother. I knew that I could do that with boundaries and still be in relationship. And then God did a miracle in that, which is pretty incredible. And I tell the whole story in the book. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that you're going to have to face the reality and you're going to have to painfully mourn some of what's in your story and believe that it's valid and that it's not stupid. A lot of people are like, it's not a big deal, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It is. And it's worth grieving. The world will tell us you don't need to forgive or you can hold on to your anger or whatever, but that's not what God says. And the reality is when we forgive, we are then able to move forward. We don't have to hold on to it. So whether that's staying in relationship and trusting the Lord and it's extremely difficult or whether that's not staying in the relationship, God will show you how to forgive and then he will give you the tools to forgive because he cares for you and he's gentle and he's kind. His intention is not to put you, to hurt you. (laughs) His intention is for good. And so I think that the, but the biggest overlying thing that you're going to have to come to terms with is, do I believe God enough to forgive? That's the big question. And then it's, okay, Lord, teach me how. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, that reminds me of, I've heard this quote in other contexts shared that, you know, when someone is saved out of sin, it is not that particular sin they are saved out of. They are saved from unbelief. Mm, you and know, that's, that's, that's good. Core. Like it's not, you know, yeah. I've heard this in the context of homosexuality and in that situation specifically, uh, Jackie Hill Perry talks about that, that, mm. you know, she wasn't saved from being a lesbian. She was saved from unbelief. And I I think that that's true for all of us. Like what, no matter what our context or or situation is, what we are, you know, saved quote unquote out of, like, what were we doing or where were we before we met Jesus? Like, it's not that particular thing, but it's that we didn't believe him. We didn't believe in God and his power and, and who he says himself to be. But that is like, that is the first step. And it's just incredible to hear how he met you in, in your story and in what, appeared, you know, to really be something that was hopeless and a place yeah. that, you know, you, you were trapped and that you could never have gotten yourself out of in a sense. Oh, for sure. I couldn't have. I mean, I can't even imagine where I would be without Jesus. It has been years and years and years of him doing such a work in my life and my mom's life, quite frankly. And I love the story when she died in 2016, I told her I will tell our story. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, one of my favorite parts is at the end of each chapter, almost every chapter are journal entries from my mom. And so you're getting her perspective too, because what I want to remember as I wrote the book is she was a person 
that yeah. God loved too. And she was wounded and she was hurt. And it's not an excuse for her sin or how she behaved towards me, mm-hmm. but it, there is an explanation. And there are a lot of women who are addicted and there are a lot of women who are hurting mm-hmm. and God's not done with you either. And so the book really is not just for somebody who maybe can relate with the pain of dysfunctional relationships with a parent or whatever, but also the person who has hurt others. Well, we all have, but I spoke to a women's group, um, women who are addicted and they were all afraid that it was too late for them. And I was like, it's never too late. It's never too late. It's Mm -hmm. never too late. That's such a beautiful, I'm so thankful that you are telling your story for, for both of those groups, you know, both of those, those people, because, and, and really in so many ways, we are each both of them. That's right. We are are all both of them. Is what I'm trying to say. That's right. Yeah. We, we have both been wounded and we wound. And that's exactly you know, right. I, I yep. know that I could tell you, I hurt my daughter's feelings before preschool this morning. And she would tell you, you know, that I was, yep. that I was being mean and unloving. And she was like, why did you do this? You know, but it, and it's like, I, I'm convicted when I hear you talk about your mom. Cause I'm like, even though I, uh, you know, I'm not telling my daughter, I don't care, you know, go ahead and do it in, in some, I'm not verbally saying that, but sometimes with the way I act, that is how I'm acting you know? And I, and it's convicting because it's like, I, that same sin is in me, that same propensity. And, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so it's just so convicting to know, like we are both of those parties throughout life Mm -hmm. and, and the grace of God covers, covers us in both of those places. That's exactly right. So I really do hope if somebody is listening out there, that they are like, how the heck do I forgive when the wound is still open? How the heck do I know when to say or when to go? How do I set boundaries? How do I mourn my losses? How do I deal with my core lies? I hope that you'll check out the book. Yes. The Complicated Heart. Or if you're somebody who thinks it's too late for me, it's not. Check it out. <laughs> yes. It's an so, amazing book. And I, I love that you know. you'd put the journals in there because I think it does show us just, you know, the title's perfect because it does show the complicated nature <laughs> of the human heart and the fact that we're not all one thing or all another, like we are yes. both in. So yes, yes. Sarah, thank you for sharing your story and being so vulnerable and honest. And um, I know that this is going to reach so many women who need to hear that mm-hmm. God can meet them in their pain and that there can be joy and victory in the midst yes. of that. That's right. That's absolutely right. And you can have a satisfying and good life, even in the midst of some pain. Yeah. Mm, so good. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Yeah, it was awesome to talk to you. Thank you guys so much for listening today. Be sure and come back next week. Click the subscribe button so you get that episode delivered directly into your podcast app when it becomes available. And in the meantime, come find me on Instagram at haleywilliams.kindled and I would love to meet you and hear more about your story. All right, guys, have a great week.